The Retrograde Approach, Episode 21, The Basics of an Arteriovenous Fistula, supported by the ANZ SVS. Yogi. Good evening. Another week, another month, another episode. And another episode with Sam Farrow, the Tibial Hunter. The only uh, pact or uh, deal we've made, Yogi, is that for the entire length of the episode, I will not discuss politics and the upcoming election. Is that fair? Fair. Okay. Now, it's, it's something that you and I would not have anything to talk about, would we? No. And, that, and thus endeth the political... The politics of the episode. What am I trying to say? I will not discuss politics any further, and we're going to talk about fistulas. Yeah, and the only thing we will say is a shout-out to our pre-fellowship trainees who are about to sit their exams. Good luck. We are thinking of you. Smash it. No more exam talk, no more politics, Yogi. Let's just crack on. Fair enough. Um, look, tonight's a, it's a great topic. Um, it's hopefully one in a series looking at arterial venous fistulas. And um, tonight we'll be looking at some of the basics and foundations in regards to the topic, um, a sort of a brief overview of the history and then the uh, evolution in terms of the preoperative assessment, um, examination and investigations um, involved, as well as a brief operative description of the procedure as well as some of the post-operative considerations. But hopefully over the next few weeks, we can expand on that to look at some of the challenges associated with fistulas, uh, which is an extremely difficult area of clinical practice uh, for vascular surgeons. And we play a role in a multidisciplinary team that involves uh, a whole range of staff in the hospital from the dialysis access coordinators to all the dialysis nurses uh, the nephrologists and um, the various other individuals that contribute to the care of renal failure patients in the hospital and community environment. Um, but Sam, I guess um, just to sort of take you back a little bit, um, it wasn't that long ago that I was a junior doctor um, and I had the privilege when I was a very junior doctor to meet a nephrologist in Sydney by the name of Dr. Charles George, who used to remind us every time on a ward round that hemodialysis was really the gift of life. And it was really a reflection of what he had seen in his time as a physician uh, and the uh, significant changes that hemodialysis had played in the care of his patients over that period of time. Um, when hemodialysis was first developed, the real challenge was the ability to achieve some form of vascular access for dialysis to be obtained. Um, and the initial devised access was through the use of a Teflon catheter, the Schuvner shunt, which connected a peripheral artery to a vein by means of a bridge. Now, of course, uh, unfortunately, there were multiple issues associated with this, and it was not till the 1960s where we had a surgically developed fistula for the ability to achieve regular and reliable vascular access. But before we go on any further, Sam, uh, it might be a good place to start. And if I could get you to perhaps provide us with a definition of what is an arteriovenous fistula and um, 
your thoughts in regards to the indications associated with the creation of an arteriovenous fistula? Yeah, sure. Just uh, briefly, Yogi, I was just looking up what a Shribna shunt is. It actually used to sit outside the skin. Yeah, it was an external shunt. It was an, and that was the problem. It was prone to infection. It was prone to clotting. Mm. It was p- prone to displacement. And if you can imagine, if that shunt displaced while you were in bed at night, um, you, you might got, bleed. You might bleed quite significantly. You're gonna have to change the bed sheets. You, you, you or your loved one. I don't know. Do I need to edit that out later? I don't know. But uh, we'll we'll move on. <laughs> I think the the term fistula in medicine is not uncommon. Uncommon. Um, we use it for all sorts of things like uh, aortoenteric fistula, which is obviously uh, quite rare but uh, quite often fatal. Colovocycle enterocutaneous fistulas, and basically what a fistula means is uh, almost any two body cavities in communication with each other, but more specifically two uh, epithelialized uh, uh, cavities connected to each other abnormally. Um, the epithelium of a blood cell is the endothelium, so a fistula is therefore a connection between the artery and the vein, which we've created. Sometimes you get them traumatically. Uh, sometimes you get them after a um, a uh, puncture gone awry, but... Uh, you know, at its very basic form, it's a connection that's been made between a vein and an artery. Yeah, absolutely. And that was uh, the the revolution in regards to the formation of the first arteriovenous fistula was was not made until 1966. And the the Brescia fistula now forms the fundamental principle behind fistula creation in modern surgical practice. So, Sam. Um, we do create a lot of fistulas for end-stage renal failure, uh, and that is to allow for patients to commence uh, intermittent hemodialysis. But what are some of the other indications that you have created fistulas for in your practice? Um, well, truth be told, I probably made one for uh, IVIG, chronic infusion, but some of the other, maybe one of the other less common causes as well is chronic TPN administration. Yeah, the biggest challenge with that cohort of patients, of course, is the need for chronic vascular access. Typically, these patients commence that through some form of central line, um, and I guess with the hope that they'd eventually not require it into the long term. But occasionally, there are patients that are unfortunately require either IVIG or total parenteral nutrition for prolonged periods of time. And the safest and most reliable way of achieving that is through the creation of a of an arteriovenous fistula. One of the other rarer indications for which a fistula may be created is typically in a palliative situation for patients or pediatric patients um, with single ventricular congenital heart disease uh, as a means of improving their overall oxygen saturation and functional status after significant cardiac surgery with ongoing cyanosis. Now, Sam and I are old enough that when we first started training many, many moons ago, Uh, The primary principle behind fistula creation really uh, was summarized by the concept of fistula first. And that was the idea that um, an autogenous fistula should be preferred over all means. And so um, the the challenge really for nephrologists was to refer a patient to a vascular surgeon early enough to allow for a fistula to be created. 
and allow that to be ready when the patient needs to commence hemodialysis. So I pose the question to you, Sam, when should a patient be referred for the creation of a vascular access for hemodialysis? Well, ideally before they need to commence dialysis, that's the, uh, the uh, straightforward answer. Obviously, you don't want um, a patient to all of a sudden need dialysis and have no access available. I think maybe we'll talk a bit uh, later in this podcast, Yogi, about maybe some of the ideas about right patient, right access um, in a moment. But We can do that now. We can do that now. But um, early on, what, what you're kind of alluding to is um, the kind of principle that, you know, you know autogenous first, and then we'd have the other principles like, such as um, start in the non-dominant arm as distally as possible, then move more proximally. Um, first of all, we want dialysis or the, uh, a, a means of um, dialysis available when the patient is ready to commence dialysis. We're trying to avoid a scenario where, where um, patients need to be commenced urgently on dialysis via a uh, tunneled catheter. However... We do also recognise that, you know, in some patients, um, a fistula may not actually be the best option. Maybe some other options are more appropriate. We also need to consider that perhaps, you know, the most distal option in the arm is not the best. In particular, um, there are some um, studies that suggest that radiocephalic fistulas in uh, elderly patients are quite prone to failure. And perhaps in those patients, a brachiocephalic is the better first option. So... Uh, it's just sort of recognizing the complexities of um, creating a uh, appropriate dialysis access option for each patient, then taking each patient's um, personal circumstances uh, into consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And um, look, the principle behind autogenous fistula creation or the fistula first principle is really about uh, trying to reduce the risk of death or sepsis associated with these alternate forms of access. Uh, but also providing adequate amounts of time for fistula maturation or the need for revision um, and subsequent intervention. Um, it's pretty fair to say that the current thinking around that has changed. And so, as you mentioned, right patient, right treatment, right access, right time is really the fundamental principle that we now um, sort of take into account. And it's also really an idea that there really isn't a one size fits all treatment modality for patients with end-stage renal failure. And as you suggested, um, the care of an end-stage renal failure patient is multidisciplinary and taking into account with the patient sort of centered in that decision process may mean that um, to improve patient quality of life, certain challenges will need to be overcome. And sometimes an autogenous fistula is not the best option for that particular patient. So this is an excellent segue then to think about what do we think about in the preoperative evaluation of a patient uh, requiring um, the creation of an arteriovenous fistula, Sam. So um, what sort of uh, questions do you pose in the history of a patient who would require a vascular access created for hemodialysis? Um, I think... um... There are some sort of uh, patient factors and sort of uh, fistula-related factors, but the, sa- the main things you're looking at, uh, which is the dominant arm of the patient? Um, have they had um, a lot of patients have blood tests repeatedly in one particular area, particularly in the cubital fossa, which can 
Uh, sometimes it causes a bit of issues with the fistula maturing, previous IV lines, any previous um, tunnel catheters, pacemakers, defibrillators, um, any major history of trauma. Um, those would be sort of the main things. Um, and then I would then take into account, as I sort of alluded to earlier, the patient's age um, and any other kind of uh, important pre-existing medical issues such as diabetes, which can obviously increase the risk of steel, as well as, um, you know, have they had their radial artery harvested for a cabbage before, they can also change your options. So yeah. very arm-centric and then patient-centric um, history and examination. Yeah, and I guess part of that helps uh, helps stratify what your plan of approach will be when you talk to your anaesthetist in terms of your preferred anaesthetic for the procedure. Yeah, and then, um, you know, some patients, you know, very frail, only option is a brachiobasilic. Sometimes, you know, patients just aren't up for something like that and you've got to look at um, alternative options. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on, once you've taken a very dedicated history, uh, it then comes to the examination of the patient. And this typically begins with assessment of the upper arm. Um, you're inspecting for any obvious evidence of scars or uh, deformities um, and any changes that you may see distally in the fingertips, uh, suggesting of uh, any sort of embolic presentation uh, that may also be of relevance. But typically the examination would allow you to evaluate pulses of the upper limb, that's of the brachial, radial and ulnar arteries, assessing them for their compressibility and whether they're symmetrical bilaterally. Also, the absence of pulses are vital, as Sam suggested. Perhaps they've had a segment of artery either harvested or uh, some other pathology that may have contributed to that. Um, the next thing you want to then look at is you want to have a look at the venous currency of the upper arm. Um, this is typically done with and then, uh, sorry, without and then with a tourniquet um, to look at the um, the vein itself to see where whether it'd be feasible to achieve a, a distal radiocephalic or whether a more proximal site is necessary. Um, One thing you yell at is I uh, quite often. Um ultrasound examine the patients myself before I make the fistula. Um, yeah, I guess bef before I whip out the ultrasound, I'm still having a good feel around the, the arm. I like to manipulate the vein. I like to distend the vein with a tourniquet. I, I like to use the technique that you use, which is uh, um, the tap tapping test. on the vein, tap test and making sure that the, uh, the vibration that's created from the tap can be felt more distally, um, but the other thing I'd also look for is any evidence of central venous stenosis, particularly significant collaterals along the chest wall, um, as well as previous pacemaker sites or previous vascular access sites that may be relevant. Now, here's a good one for you, Sam, um, from your fellowship exam. Hit How me. do you do an Allen's test? <clears throat> oh, God. Well, um, so an Allen's test, well, basically we're looking to see if the palmar arch is intact. So uh, we compress the radial and uh, ulnar arteries simultaneously. We get the patient to open and close their hand several times to basically uh, drain the hand of blood and then uh, sequentially release uh, both ulnar and radial arteries to see if they um, perfuse the hand individually quite well. And you say the, the palmar arch is intact. 
um, if uh, each of those arteries <clears throat> is adequately able to supply the hand. Yeah, and usually the dominant artery into the hand is the ulnar artery, um, which what, which is what allows us to create a fistula with a radial artery inflow. Um, so if we do get the ultrasound out, like Sam suggested, what sort of diameters are you looking for, Sam, with the artery in the vein that would be sufficient for, say, a creation of a distal radiocephalic fistula? Um, I don't really get too concerned about the diameters per se. I think the most important thing is of the artery, I should say. I just look at, first of all, is there a good quality radial pulse? Usually means the diameter will therefore be uh, adequate. And then also is um, on ultrasound, is the artery especially calcified, which sometimes means it will struggle to mature because uh, part of the maturation process is also uh, dilation of the artery. So those two things I think are important. But, you know, if you're going off, a, if there's an ultrasound worksheet being provided, then most people would say two millimetres is a cutoff. But I think if one and two are checked off, i.e. good pulse and non-calcified, then you should be okay with the artery. Yeah, and then if we turn our attention to the vein, um, what would be the ideal diameter of a uh, of a vein that you would like to use for a fistula creation? Uh, a young patient in the forearm, I'd probably accept as a minimum two point five, but preferably, obviously, anything greater than three is is better. Yeah, I guess the larger the diameter, the better maturation you have with your fistula. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably too large, especially if you're making a brachial fistula, an upper arm fistula, yes. then there's a risk of steel. But, um, yeah, generally um, uh, larger is better yeah. to a degree. Yes. Um, so going back to a comment that Sam made earlier, when we think about where to create the fistula, there are multiple things that we take into account. Um, typically, we preferentially choose to do an upper uh, extremity vascular access in the first instance in the non-dominant arm. Um, the upper arm is chosen predominantly, sorry, the upper extremity is typically chosen because of its easy accessibility and lower rates of infection. Um, and it's also probably straightforward as to why the non-dominant hand or arm is chosen um, so that when on dialysis, um, a patient's still able to function and do carry out activities as they so, so see fit. But also, if they ever do get to the point of being able to do dialysis at home, um, you, having the dominant arm free allows them to be able to also self-cannulate. Um, whilst this is less common in Australia, it's definitely more common across uh, the Tasman in New Zealand, uh, where home dialysis is definitely much more prevalent. Um, when it comes to access, as Sam also mentioned, we typically try and start as distal as possible in the extremity and then subsequently move more proximal as we need to. And that's to try and mitigate or reduce the potential risk of steel associated with fistula creation. Um, and the ideal circumstances when we do create a uh, vascular access, we typically like to create an octogenous fistula uh, to try and maintain the fistula patency is for as long as we can and reduce the potential complications, which are more associated with prosthetic arteriovenous fistulas. When it comes to the type of anastomosis or the type of fistula creation, typically we, we aim to create a direct anastomosis between vein and artery. However, there are occasions when the vein may need to be transposed or translocated to cre create a fistula. However, this comes in with inherent risks 
of um, uh, the mob- mobilizing the vein itself. And predominantly the biggest issue with that is kinking, which results in a lower patency over a period of time. Um, so Sam, let's say you are, you've seen a patient in clinic and they yep. are suitable uh, in terms of their uh, arterial and venous anatomy for mm-hmm. a distal radiocephalic fistula. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have your registrar who's never seen a fistula created before. That's me. Um, could you talk me through how you create a distal radiocephalic arterial venous fistula? Uh, the first thing um, probably worth uh, mentioning is the anesthetic given. Um, so I think um, most of us would prefer a uh, arm block for a fistula creation. I think the results are better, allows the vein to dilate more. Um, and obviously these patients can have uh, significant comorbidities and uh, the less invasive uh, anesthetic, the better. can be performed under local entirely and also can be performed under a general anesthetic. Uh, once the patient's been anesthetized, then um, apply a tourniquet to the arm and then have a good feel for the vein and then perform a diagnostic ultrasound just looking at the diameters and the lie of the vein in any uh, large tributaries um, in the vicinity that I think should be ligated or tied off at the time to allow um, maturation of the main outflow vein. Um, once I do that, I have a feel for the radial pulse and then uh, draw a line in between the cephalic vein and the radial artery uh, pretty close to the um, wrist crease. Then um, once I've done that, open the skin uh, and subcutaneous tissues, open the fascia and then look for the vein. Uh, I then divide it as far distally as I can, uh, free it up, divide any major branches, and then I perform an intercide anastomosis to the radial artery. Um, generally, I like to do this on the tourniquet. I think it's less traumatic um, to the artery and the vein and you don't need to clamp either. Um, and uh, I generally give um, 3,000 units of heparin for most patients when I perform a fistula. Um, one of the challenges with the fistula creation, Sam, is um, the orientation of the vein as you do the anastomosis. Is there anything that you pay special attention to to try and maintain the orientation of it? Or the second, sorry, and the second part of that question is, uh, do you hydrodilate the vein to ensure that it's of adequate caliber before you create the join? Um, I do. Yeah. So I do hydro. Um, I do mark the vein to make sure I don't twist it, make sure it's in the right orientation. I'll then look at the major tributaries that are tied off because they can sometimes use them as a, a landmark to know what the orientation is. Um, I do like to pass a three mil dilator into the vein just to ensure that it'll take it. And a, there were no major sort of um, stenosis higher up that might sort of correlate with uh, poor maturation and perhaps, you know, you're even giving it a small venoplasty on your way with the dilator. Um, and I do like to hydrodilate it um, just to ensure that, again, flushing well blows up to a good size and it'll be adequate. And further question, with the arteriotomy, how large do you make that? Um, oh, for a radiocephalic, four or five millimeters. I'm sort of not too scared to make that a little bigger. Yeah, and and the reason for that is to ensure there's adequate maturity and the risk of steel associated with the distal radiocephalic fistula is low. 
Um, yep. So, but Sam, I guess um, for those of you out there who are pondering why, uh, what do you see as potentially one of the um, sort of downfalls of a regional anaesthetic for fish creation? Um, you know, there's a very rare complication called ischemic monomelic neuropathy. Um, basically, due to you know changes in the arterial perfusion to the upper limb, you basically have a perhaps a situation where you know the main nerves are also ischemic. The arm is you know purposefully made numb for an anaesthetic, then the recognition of that and the treatment of that is delayed, <clears throat> where the um, appropriate treatment is actually ligation, immediate ligation of the fistula. Um, now it's extremely rare. I've never seen it. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Yogi. Um, no. I think the incidence is less than one percent. So I do know some surgeons who are not happy to do brachial fistulas because that's where the risk is slightly higher due because of that reason. Um, so I don't know. Is the risk of giving every patient a general anaesthetic uh, justified to avoid the risk of that very rarely? I don't know. But, uh, yeah, that's that's potentially what you're missing by uh, performing a regional block. What about performing it under local anaesthetic? Well, yeah, no, you can perform. It's probably a little bit harder, truth be told, to perform the procedure under local anaesthetic. The patient um, usually has some degree of pain. Um, regardless, either from the local infiltration or the manipulation or the diathermy causing irritation to the median nerve can also irritate them. So although, you know, the very high-risk patient can be performed under local, um, it's tolerated, say, moderately well to not well, depending on the patient. Some patients are fine, but they don't love it. They don't love it. Yeah, it's definitely a challenge and I found it a significant challenge when I went across to do a couple of years of training in New Zealand where a lot of the lists for fistulas were done without anaesthetic support, um, which made for some days to be a lot lot hairier than others. But you're right, it's um, it can mean that um, patients find it incredibly challenging and they have to be counselled significantly um, before the procedure. Uh, so they understand the, what, what's going to happen. And also as the proceduralist being ready and comfortable to uh, top up the operative site with local anesthetic as you go along. Uh, it does mean that you don't have the advantage of the regional anesthetic associated vasodilation that you may see. However, uh, it's sort of on a risk benefit discussion regarding what would be the best option for the patient. Yep. And I think, you know, just, you know, just lastly, you know, before, finally, before you move on, you know, obviously in uh, third world countries where there's a large uh, uh, population with chronic kidney disease requiring dialysis, there's no opportunity to really arm block a lot of patients. And a lot of these fistulas are purely done under local for, you know, just to basically churn through the lists. Yeah. So there are definitely circumstances where, uh, a local local anaesthetic is an appropriate course of action. However, there are some technical challenges uh, when it comes to it. So, Sam, um, you create an amazing radiocephalic fistula. Not surprised, yep. <laughs> uh, 
you're right. When, 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 will you, when will you see the patient post-operatively and what sort of landmarks, uh, first of all, sorry, what will you do when you see the patient at six weeks? Sorry. What will you see the patient? What will you, what will you do when you examine the patient and what sort of things will you look for in the fistula so that they are ready to be uh, cannulated? So, yeah, I'll see them at six to eight weeks with a duplex or their fistula. I'll look at a few things. Number one, the flow rate. Um, just to a, uh, at a minimum, you want that running at 600 cc's per minute um, um, as a bare minimum. Um, you want to also examine the, the... You want to also make sure there's no major narrowings. I think most of us use 2.7 from um, John Swinnon's studies as a benchmark for a significant stenosis. I think anything less than three in an early fistula should be investigated further with a fistula gram. Um, generally speaking, you want to make sure that the diameter is appropriate. So most of us like it, the needling segment at least six millimeters. It's appropriate in depth. So, you know, we're really talking about the rule of sixes here, Yogi. 600 cc's per minute, six mils in size, less than six millimeters from the skin. Um, there are more. What are they? And- and six centimeters of dialyzable length, and That's right. review and review at six weeks. Yeah, I also find it very useful to uh, have the clinic with a renal access nurse who um, examines the fistula, and if she tells me, "Yeah, I can needle this," then usually it's okay. They're quite good at assessing fistula in terms of you know is this readily palpable? Do I think I can safely get the needles into this uh, time after time? Is it, you know, the, all those sort of things are, are quite important. Yeah. And I think that really summarizes the relationship you have with the vascular access coordinator. Um, at the end of the day, they will see the patient uh, frequently and also provide feedback in terms of when the vascular access starts to become troublesome. Mm-hmm. And so together having a good relationship with them allows you to identify at-risk patients, but also coordinate their follow-up and surveillance as necessary. So uh, I I can only echo the comments that Sam made that uh, the relationship you have with the vascular access coordinator can only help strengthen the care you provide to this group of patients. Yep. Um, Now the, the final thing perhaps to talk about tonight is really the fact that autogenous fissures are um, really still uh, essentially the preferred option for long-term access for hemodialysis at the end of the day um, in the majority of patients. It may not be the right option for everybody, but in the majority, it's probably the way that we uh, we typically lean towards. And that's really because the primary patency rates of an arterial venous fistula at one year are somewhere between 43 and 50, 85%. And at two years, it's somewhere between 40 and 70%. Um, the rates for primary patency of an arteriovenous prosthetic fistula or graft is markedly lower. In one year, somewhere between 40 and 55%. And at two years, down to about 18 to 30%. So there are some significant disadvantages with prosthetic grafts. Apart from their patency, the other biggest issue is infection. And that is a significant issue in a clearly highly comorbid group of patients who face significant challenges with um, any form of surgical intervention. At the end of the day though, as as we discussed, um, 
really the practice in regards to fistulas has shifted and really the take-home message from our discussion is really about the fact that whatever vascular access is chosen, it really needs to be the right patient, right treatment, right access, right time. And that really summarizes the current thinking in regards to the choice of vascular access for end-stage renal failure patients. So Yogi, uh, <clears throat> my, my fistula, my, my beautiful radiocephalic patient is uh, in recovery and um, the nurses are called because there's no thrill or brewing, which is obviously very unusual for me, but uh, it has happened on the odd occasion. What do you, what do you, what do you think has uh, gone on? Yeah, so you've got a occluded, newly created arteriovenous fistula. Um, one of many things could have potentially occurred in the situation. Uh, the most common cause at this early would be entirely technical. Excuse um, me. And that could be as a result of the, it could be one of many reasons. It could be related to the join. It could be related to the clamp. It could be related to the orientation of the vein in relation to the artery. It could be as a result of tension. It could be as a result of a hematoma that's formed and compressed the airflow. It could be a poor understanding or um, reflection of the venous airflow of that fistula as well. Um, it could just have been a, a very small vein that you've chosen to anastomose to the artery in the first yep. instance. Yep. So in short, there are a multitude of reasons for why a fistula may fail early, but in, with appropriate planning and identifying the adequate venous currency and arterial diameters, you would think that your rate of success should be good. And if, it's still, if a fissure still occludes, then um, maybe there's something that can be salvaged if it's identified early um, and that can be rectified soon after the procedure, uh, especially if they're taken back early enough. Yep. So maybe this will just take me on to my second question. Um, what um, what what makes a fistula feel feel like a good fistula to you? Yeah, so um, there there's probably a, uh, a few characteristics that I would look for mm -hmm. uh, it, on on examination. Really, you want to have a good audible brewy, um, and clinically they should have a palpable thrill. A thrill, of course, is very different to a pulse. And if a fistula feels pulsatile, then it's it's not ideal. Uh, there's something that's suggestive of perhaps an inflow, uh, sorry, an outflow related stenotic problem, which may be contributing to that. Um, the second component is the length of um, the fistula sort of available to be cannulated that plays a significant role in being able to allow for this patient to achieve adequate dialysis. Um, the, the third component, and these really fall back into the rule of sixes in some way, is also ensuring that the depth and the diameter of the vein is adequate uh, for that to be, to, for dialysis to be achieved. Um, overall, it's a, it's a multitude of um, both anatomical and physiological characteristics which should then help determine whether the fistula is appropriate or not. But on in a very simple way of looking at it, um, the best way going back to sort of bare principles 
is a palpable thrill and an audible brewery that helps shape your approach um, to looking after uh, the fistula itself. Very good, mate. You've you've obviously seen a couple of fistulas in your time. Only a few. <laughs> well, uh, that brings us to the end of another uh, episode. Yogi's just uh, slowly coughing to death, but uh, hopefully you'll be back <laughs> for the next one, Yogi. I'm back, I'm back. Um, no, look, um, hopefully that's uh, a great um, introduction into the foundations of an arterial venous fistula. We really do want to build on this particular topic and talk about some of the more um, sort of the complexities associated with the care of a fistula. Um, there are a range of adjunct procedures that can be formed uh, or done in regards to some of the complications that occur. And hopefully we can touch on that going forward, Sam. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, the goal of this episode was really just to give people a, um, a, a general, very general overview. Obviously, um, you know, our audience is fairly broad and um, probably the majority of our audience are, are not vascular surgeons. So we wanted to really um, provide something that was quite general in nature. And then as time goes on, we can go into the more nuanced and um, advanced ideas and uh, topics. Yeah, absolutely. So looking forward to more fistula chat as we um, return over the next few weeks to do that. And hopefully we'll have um, a post-exam candidate on to talk about uh, the exam and what they did and uh, how they found it. Um, so I'm looking forward to that one. That might be the next one or the, the subsequent episode. Excellent. Thanks, Yogi. Thanks, Thanks Sam. <laughs>